Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, it's me, Sam Baker. And before we go on with the show, I want to tell you about an exciting new initiative coming from The Shift. Many of you have asked how you can support the podcast further and get more Shift into the bargain. Well, now you have the opportunity to do just that by joining The Shift community. You can go to steady.media forward slash The Shift and become a member of The Shift. In return for supporting the podcast, you'll receive exclusive weekly newsletters, community membership and plenty of other perks aimed at bringing us all closer together. That's Steady. Dot media forward slash the shift. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no holds barred truth about being a woman post 40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster Sam Baker. Today's guest is a woman I've admired for the longest time, stage and screenwriter Abby Morgan. Throughout her 30 year career, Abby has written some of our most memorable drama Shame, Sex Traffic, The Queen, Iron Lady, The Hour, for which she won an Emmy, Suffragette, and most recently, the BBC One hit, The Split. In her work, female characters took centre stage long before that became the fashionable thing to do. But now, Abby has been forced to take centre stage herself. Four years ago, she returned home one lunchtime to find her partner of 20 years, Jacob, collapsed on the bathroom floor. It was the start of a sequence of events that would upend their family forever. And it's the subject of perhaps the most extraordinary memoir I have ever read. It's about love, trauma, and ultimately, weirdly, about hope. In starting to write the book, I was just trying to work out why I wanted to tell this story. You know, after the kids were in bed and after I'd done my work and after I'd, you know, been either, you know, at hospital or certainly caring for Jake, why did I want to sit down at my kitchen table until two, three in the morning and get it out? And it became such a comfort to me. Abby joined me to talk candidly about the cataclysmic impact of Jake's illness, the long and ongoing journey to rebuild their family, and how, in the midst of all that, she coped with her own breast cancer diagnosis. 
Oh, my God, thanks for your amazing quote. Oh, thank you for your amazing book, Abby. Really, honestly, it was really lovely, and I, yeah, those things mean so much, so thank you. So how are uh, you feeling now it's imminent? Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, it's quite strange because I've had a week because my other show, The Split, that I write, I write this show for BBC, mm. and that's been out, and that's sort of been like the backdrop of my life for the last five, six years. And I feel like this book, I wrote a year, you know, I wrote it over a year ago. At Books least. are weird like that, aren't they? They're so weird. So it's sort of been hovering like that. And now it's something and I feel like it's, you know, it's like the Muppet on my shoulder. I feel relieved that the story's gone on from the book in many ways. I feel like I've read so many amazing books recently, you know, the last year, and there just feels like some amazing memoirs coming through. And so in the grand scheme of things, I feel incredibly nervous, but um, I'm glad it's coming out in the world now. I think it's probably ready to be out in the world. You're so used to being the writer kind of in control of the story, if you like. Yeah. How was that? I guess the story is in control of you in this instance. When I was prepping for this interview, I mean, obviously I know your work, but I hadn't listened to your podcast. And my God, what a delight it is. And it's amazing. I love your questioning. I love how how open people are with you. You know, because I think there's always that feeling... And maybe that's what's liberating about podcasts is yeah. weirdly it doesn't feel like they have the same agenda as traditional journalism. And so there's a freedom I can hear in the conversation. And so I listened to Delia Efron. So, I mean, I was a massive Nora Efron fan, a massive fan of Delia's screenwriting. So, you know, I just thought the way she has used the prism of her life and she's realised that actually there's drama gold there and there's, you know, that every kind of mishap can be converted into a story. I, I kind of really connected with that. You know, I think it was Nora Efron who said, above all be the heroine in your life not not the victim and that was definitely going around in my head when I was writing I was just like I have to write it out you know listening to Delia you know she said if you can sing if you can dance if you can knit just do anything but try and find a way to process what you're going through and so I felt like my writing really saved me amidst utter chaos it's a bit like there's this crazy Sudoku wordle now and you're, you're trying to put together the whole time I always felt like I was trying to just try and put together a puzzle which is inherently what you do as a writer anyway you know, with any kind of narrative, any kind of research, you're, you're kind of trying to work out why you're telling the story. And I guess in many ways, in starting to write the book, I was just trying to work out why I wanted to tell this story, you know, after the kids were in bed and after I'd done my work and after I'd, you know, been either, you know, at hospital, certainly caring for Jake, why did I want to sit down at my kitchen table until two, three in the morning and get it out? And it became such a comfort to me. So I kind of wrote it as a comfort and to make sense of it. And I guess to get back control of something that felt uncontrollable. So uncontrollable. Can you just tell us a little bit about the day that it happened? The, I suppose, yeah. the, the line between, as you put it, before catastrophe and after disaster. You know, it was June 2018. It was a really normal day. Jake hadn't been feeling well. Jake's my partner. You know, we've been together at that time nearly 18 years. We've got two teenage children. Um, it was the last day of my son's GCSEs. It was an incredibly hot day. And Jacob had been in bed. I think I'd slept in the, I'd slept in the spare room that night. And when I came up to see him, it was a sort of familiar routine that we sometimes go through. Jake's got an underlining condition of MS. He's in the relapsing remitting phase. So he's been very lucky he's been pretty high functioning but that day he just had an excruciating headache and what I thought was a cold and maybe an early sign of a relapse you know I did my usual threw him some paracetamol and stomped out to work (laughs) and picked him up some medication and when I came back after lunch about two o'clock I found him collapsed on the floor of our bathroom and really that was 
just this pivotal moment of change in our life. And I don't think I knew just how radically our lives were going to change after that, but also how radically different life was going to be for Jacob. And very quickly, it became apparent that Jacob had and was in the process of having a series of tonic colonic seizures, which were kind of grand mal seizure. And what was extraordinary was it felt like within five, 10 minutes, we had, you know, such a kind of huge kind of gang of medics and ambulance. And then we had an air ambulance. And to cut a long story short, Jake was transported very quickly to hospital where we had a kind of, you know, touch and go kind of two weeks where Jake basically started to lose his mind and they tried to work out what was wrong with him. And when it became apparent that his whole kind of pneumonic function was failing, you know, his ability to breathe, to maintain his temperature, to just basically stay alive, then he was put in an induced coma for seven months. And so, yeah, that was the kind of the sort of start of the experience, really. And it's kind of strange because, you know, I remember when I was doing some media training and they were saying, you know, it's fine to repeat the same story again, you know, and I'm like, really, is it fine? Because I think, you know, as a writer, you're always kind of looking for a different way to interpret it. You know, I I think I often reference the idea of being an archaeologist or a detective, but I'm trying to make sense of my everyday, every day. And so, and at heart, you know, I think, I think to be this level of creative, there's always a narcissist raging in there. So, you know, I kind of knew as it was happening that there was very real drama happening in front of me. But at the same time, it feels like you're on a complete roller coaster and you just have no idea when you're going to hit that wall, but you just know it's coming. I mean, it's strange, I, you know, something I haven't said before, but I had a, a sort of sense that something was coming in the months before. And I remember speaking to a friend who sadly lost a very close relative to a heart attack. And she had told me that when she spoke to the, the doctor, he said that her relative had a a sort of premonition that something didn't feel quite right in the world. And I had had this feeling, actually, the last few months, I kept on feeling like something's coming, I can feel it, something's coming. And, you know, there's always something coming. I mean, my God, it could have been the global pandemic. But ultimately, it it was weird, because I felt both out of control and prepared when it hit. So interesting, because he had actually talked to his doctor, hadn't he, about starting to have symptoms that were freaking him out, but he hadn't yeah. talked to you about that. No, he hadn't. I mean, I think his MS was something that we we lived around, we ignored, mm. tried not to let it into our lives too much. He was lucky in many ways because, you know, he was pretty high functioning within it. But I definitely think, you know, he was obviously alert to something going on. But at the same time, you know, it was a really busy week for him. He'd been shooting. He was an actor. So he'd been shooting a, a TV show and you know I've been helping him with his lines and our kids you know as I said my son was in his final week of his GCSE so life you know we've got a daughter who is busy with all her sports stuff so our life was taken up with the kind of domestic metronome that most people's lives are taken up with and so you know I think he'd he pushed that very much to the back of his mind and in fact we'd been in Italy in May the last week in May or first week of June maybe and he developed this kind of low-level rash and this itch you know the day he collapsed this huge bottle of kind of weird kind of pseudo this is going to heal everything oil arrived I was about to give it to him saying look you know try this it must be and actually we now realize that was a that was a symptom of of what was coming which it turned out to be anti-NMDA and receptor encephalitis which is known more probably widely as brain on fire Um, oh right you know that that was really what happened to him I mean there's a bit in the book where you say that a friend said what's your worst fear and you you said that he'll wake up and he won't remember me it was actually so much worse than that wasn't it yeah yeah I mean it's you know again you know I, I think comas are so active there's so much industry around a coma and your life has to go on around it and so you know it's very adrenalized as an experience and actually you never get to see your family as much as you do through a tragedy because you spend so much yeah, time yeah. together. So in many ways, you know, at times there were heartbreak, 
great, but there was also a sort of camaraderie amongst us and our relationship with the nurses. And, and you know, the kind of idea that when someone wakes up from a coma, they kind of open their eyes, ping, and it's like, hi, hi, you know, there's reconnection. Like a film, yeah. Like a, like a movie. It just, it just wasn't like in the movies, you know. And what actually happened with Jake, because it was an induced coma, they kept on trying to bring him out of that coma. And, and yet his body was seizuring. And so it became apparent that he couldn't cope. So they put him back under. So he would drift up almost to the surface. And, you know, you'd see little physical movements. You'd see, you know, flickering of eyelids, you know, you'd see. And then he, you'd occasionally see his mouth move and then he'd be put right down again and he'd be in the deep slumber. So he had been like this kind of growling bear in a cave and you were kind of waiting for him to come out of hibernation. So when he did, and it was again, this sort of ebb and flow, you know, there was a sort of gradual focusing on us individually. And, you know, he was clearly happy to see everyone, but I did become apparent that with me there was this kind of beady-eyed stare like okay who the hell are you and I, I could almost feel he was playing along with it but actually he couldn't keep it up and very quickly I sensed something wasn't quite right and I, I didn't actually articulate it to myself until you know I describe in the book on Valentine's Day I kind of went in and you know Valentine's Day was something we sometimes celebrated sometimes we didn't you know it was, I think I call it cheesy hallmark and it's pap and it's fun or it can be ignored you know and but I'd taken him in a really cheesy big red cellophane heart because I thought he'd think it was funny. And I could see this kind of distinct discomfort. And I suddenly thought, God, I'm, I think he thinks I'm a stalker. You know, he's, <laughs> you know he, he was kind of politely going, get her out of the room. I could sort of feel this kind of huge antipathy towards me. And it was only when the nurse sort of challenged and said, look, it's your wife. She's, you know, give your wife this rose. And, you know, obviously they've got these kind of cheap garage shop roses <laughs> that they gave to every, you know, every patient who was in, you know, family member or, you know, loved one. And he was so uncomfortable and he just said, she's not my wife, which at that um, point was true. We weren't married. But, you know, my biggest memory was I remember feeling a mix of, I remember I slightly laughed and I recoiled with it. But also there was like, I think there was this tiny mercenary part of me going, this is interesting. This is, oh, right. Okay. This is really interesting. So <laughs> I was kind of fascinated at that point. I think it was that moment where I thought, oh yeah, this is a good drama. I don't were you know. aware of that? Do you think, or is that with hindsight that you were no, seeing I mean, the I'm kind totally, of copy, you know? I'm, you know, I'm totally aware of my own ability to storytell. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, I noticed, you know, it, it can be anything from, I bought a dress for 20 quid and I have to say I got it for 10 or, <laughs> you know, I, or, you know, it, the, the stories always get bigger. So I'm always interested in the art of storytelling. I think what was really important to me in this story was how close I had to stay to the truth because, you know, it was terrifying and it was brutal and it was so, so unknown. So I didn't want to elaborate or fetishize or overindulge. I just tried to stay as close as I could to the storytelling and try and listen. I was just trying to work it out. You know, my father-in-law calls me Dr. Google. Because, <laughs> you know, if you could find it on Google, I'd find it. So I was just searching, searching, searching. So I guess Jacob became my obsession and trying to understand what had happened to Jacob became my kind of biggest deadline, really. In a way of giving yourself control, I suppose, over something that was completely uncontrollable. Totally. And, and a kind of slightly sort of messiah complex that I could solve it. You know, if I could work mm. it out, I could solve it. You know, if I could find out how this had gone wrong and why it had gone wrong and what we could do to change it, then somehow there'd be an answer to it. So that was definitely the driver, a massive ego alongside 
was crashing lack of confidence you know those two things <laughs> yes. where they bounce against each other a lot in my life you know I think that's quite a writer thing isn't it that like like say the massive kind of narcissistic ego and that oh no I can't do it imposter yeah, syndrome thing total, total total you know young writers I'm often asked to mentor young writers and I always say there's no room for doubt and actually I come to us doubts a really important part of pushing mm. yourself forward because you need that kind of you need that counterpoint in you you need that sort of still critical voice that goes is this good enough are you being truthful here do you really think you can do that I guess the sort of wild swimming free running part of me also needs to liberate myself from that and push myself forward with the storytelling and I think that's true of most writers you know you have to at some point your ego has to take control and say no this is a story that's going to be told I was listening to the Desert Island Disc you did which was really interesting because it was recorded two or three months before Jacob's yeah Yeah. it was about the April before he collapsed yeah and have you listened to it since? No, I haven't listened back to it, but I do remember it. I mean, I remember one of the things I remember is describing about my 20s and how lonely I'd been. And mm. I'd met Jake in my very early 30s. And I remember talking about it then. I hadn't thought about it, hadn't connected with it. But I remember when in the course of our conversation connecting to that, I'd suddenly realised how much Jake had meant to me and meeting Jake and how that had somehow been a huge kind of transition out of a, a sense of loneliness. And that's what I remember from from that interview. I remember mm. thinking, oh my God, you know, I, I shocked myself how emotional I'd felt about it. Yeah, because I listened to it yesterday and then I reread the book just to have it fresh in my mind before I spoke to you. And it was really stark. Doing it so close. So you talking about how important he was and then the meeting of him and what a big difference it had made to your life. And then yeah. within months, this yeah. insane thing had happened. You know, Jake had been central not only to my personal life, but to my working life. You know, where mm. you know, Jake's an actor, but had spent, you know, many years as actors do being in and out of work. And so it became apparent really early on then it made sense for him to be the stay-at-home dad which he absolutely was and he was brilliant at it and I also talk about that in the book but also it meant that I could go away for months on end and work on a shoot or you know come home late and it wasn't without its conflict but it was a really good working relationship in that way and so I attribute in part to being able to push myself forward in the career because I had him absolutely cheerleading behind and also he loved being a dad he loved the whole kind of ecosystem around being a parent you know the the sports days and the you know cake sales and the you know the hanging out with your kids and just being there and the homework and that was just absolutely central to his life I guess that was it I felt like I had a running partner I remember he once said to me I'm worried I won't keep up and you know the irony was I could never keep up with him you know he was always the adventurer he was always the one going let's do this because actually you know it's the yin and yang isn't it but that side Mm. of me would you know would sit on a platform and eat eat a sandwich rather than explore Paris yes (laughs) I hate it in myself I have to force myself out you know I just I was just on a, a recce for a tv show looking at locations and I was in Vancouver and I had one day at the end where I was free and I thought what am I doing lying in my hotel room watching yeah. TV? get out in Vancouver and I could almost hear Jake's voice going get out get out get out and I had to literally physically push myself out and, and walk the streets you know because if it was up to me you know it would be me in delivery for the rest of my life yeah. so, um, oh god I'm so capable of that it's like in a way locked down really played to my strengths you know? totally. well also I felt like the world had found out something I already knew which was working from home was quite great yeah. <laughs> not having to talk to people all the time oh totally 
I was really interested when you were talking about your relationship roles. He did that stuff of life, mm. really, if you like, the admin, the white goods, the dealing with the ominous cracks in the wall. And that's because you're, it's your separate roles in the relationship. It's not that one of you is going, oh, yeah, you do that and I'm just going to turn a blind eye. But then when that person isn't there, you're just like, I don't even know which doors these keys fit. Totally. I didn't know what my passwords were. I didn't even know how much I earned every year. That was how much I'd let go of control. You know, I just signed the accounts at the end of the year. Yeah, so much I had to relearn, reconnect with, you know, and I'd been, you know, I'd been single way into my late 20s, early 30s. So it's not like I hadn't done that stuff. And it made me realize how much in a relationship that, you know, talk about leaning in, I was horizontal. I was full, full <laughs> horizontal. I like, shoved it all over into that back cupboard, which was Jacob. And I kind of gone, great, you deal with it. As I whistled out and went to my office and wrote all day. And I, you know, I didn't notice the cracks in the wall. I didn't notice the, I mean, in some ways that's part of why I got an office outside because I needed to actually get away from that. And so the lines became much clearer. I mean, there's so many things, you know, I had to, you know, we've still got two storage units and I still don't know where the keys are and neither does Jake, you know, so somewhere <laughs> we've got two storage units and I keep going this week, I'm going to go with a, a bolt cutter and I'm going to cut those locks off and get in there. But I feel like, you know, I've had to regroup, but in some ways, the thing that it did give me was it made me re-inhabit my life that outside of work, it made me reconnect with my children. You know, I got to have this incredible four years with my children in a way that I wonder if I would have had in the same way. You know, Jake and I were sitting around a table once and we we asked our children about their five favorite days and they talked about their five favorite days and they were like, oh, God, there was that great day when we went to San Francisco and we walked across the Golden Gate Bridge and then, oh, there was that amazing holiday in Greece where we went and then we were in Croatia da, 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 and then there was that day. And by the end of the fifth day, I realized I wasn't in one of them. You know, whenever oh, they'd wow. gone to San Francisco, I was in LA and we'd started in LA and they'd gone on or, you know, while they were in Greece, I'd been working on a, a set in London and they'd gone interrailing with their father for a month. I had a long running series that I couldn't leave. And I was like, wow, I missed these five important days in my kid's life. And I think that also was a, a kind of amazing sort of vivid wake up call I had with Jacob's collapse was I felt like I not only saw Jacob very differently, but I also saw myself in relation to my children really differently. Wow. When Jacob finally came home after year and a half nearly yeah, in hospital he was no longer really himself was he but you talk in the book about it's not just that you've kind of got a stranger coming home but also as you just said you started to re-inhabit your life and you've probably also started to re-inhabit the house totally I mean I look at my I look at my services that now have a sort of steady layer of vases and extra <laughs> photos and knickknacks and crap and I think god I wonder if Jake's ever going to notice that now because they were all clear before. It's like there's a layer of my my personal detritus I put everywhere. I've sort of spread out everywhere. And I know, you know, partly that was because life became very focused on him and has been about him. You know, it's been the Jacob show for the last, you know, it'll be four years in June since he collapsed. But yeah, when he walked through that door... It was strange. It was actually 15, nearly 16 months that he was in hospital. And I remember as he came up the stairs, I'd actually recorded a journey through the house for the therapist. They'd asked me to record it because they were trying to get a sense of the mechanics of getting Jacob in. And watching Jacob go into that house, what I realized was that you know, the stairwell, which is bright yellow, which he painted, the door, which is, you know, yellow is a great colour, which he painted, you know, the bench, which is bright orange in the sitting room. These were really important markers for Jacob because you could literally feel that Jacob's cognitive, you know, wheels were turning and he was making connections. And so 
Funny enough, yes, I did inhabit the house, but I also became aware that home, a house, the physical building of a house also forms the backbone of a family and a relationship. It's the kind of infrastructure you live within. And also it became a way for Jacob and I to sort of find our way back together. You know, so conversations would come out of the bench, the orange bench, how he built it, you know, the the wall and the chip on the wall and the scratch. And we could talk about, you know, where the dog had eaten a bit of carpet. You know, there were lots of conversations that we were able to get from just this location, this environment. You know, I'd had 16 months without and we all had. And I think we're all incredibly changed by the experience and in many ways as Jake gets better what I realise is is that he's slightly suspended still somewhere before where he collapsed whereas we've all kind of gone forward and had this experience and so you know the work at the moment is how we reconcile these two very different halves of one family together again but I definitely oh my god I went crazy with 3am shopping I mean my kids used to (laughs) pack the fridge with food you know I would like everything was about trying to keep this house abundant trying to keep this house alive you know every plant would be watered within an inch of its life every flower would be bought and put in a vase there was this huge sort of fight in me because I just felt like something was dying and I was worried that if I left it unintended it would go out it was like trying to tend a fire that was on the edge of going out and I just felt like we had to keep tending it and pushing forward with it and so the house became also an extension of that I guess in a way because I also wanted him to come home to it that was the dream that's what we were building towards is bringing Jacob home was there ever a point where you thought I don't know if I want to rebuild this thing I'm different you're different I think I put that further away I think I put that down the road I I think I thought if you're too different if this gets too hard then I will have an option b plan b I don't think that's unusual to have when a marriage is healthy and well I think everybody has a plan b you know everybody has their fantasies or their fears or their terrors you know and that can be equally something falling apart as much as you choosing to take it apart. I don't know if I had that. I definitely had a moment where I knew profoundly I couldn't go on and that scared the life out of me. And in a weird way, I think I describe it in the book like a warm bath, you know, and I had this moment where I just wanted utter release. And it, it's something I I really respect in myself now and I really deeply understand the desire to disconnect from life. And I think that is what I ran away from. I've, I work hard to run away from now to keep as far away from that as I can, because it's very seductive, it's very powerful, and it's a one-way ticket that you can't come back from. And so that's something that I think everything I've done since then has been a counterpoint to that, is still a counterpoint to that. Yeah, I think it's something I just... And actually, the thing is, Jake isn't just my partner. Jake isn't just the father of my children. Jake's my family, you know? So even if Jake and I had not worked out, even if we don't work out as a couple, Jake will never not be my family. And that's what I realised is, is that it went beyond the bond of marriage and connection for me with Jacob and partnership. It was just this profound sense that I needed to know that Jake would be okay in the world and I need to know Jake would be okay in the world. And that, in a weird way, has nothing to do whether Jake and I will survive. It's more to do with I just need to know he's going to be okay and I want him to push forward in his life. I can hear myself. I mean, that's not to say I didn't rage and that's not to say I don't have days where I feel furious. And, you know, and I, I, when my daughter read, you know, the book, because I, you know, I had to get my kids approval more than anyone. Yeah, of course. Teenagers now. Yeah. I mean, they're more than, yeah, my son's 20 now and my, and Mabel, my daughter is 18. She said, mom, are you okay about people not liking you? And I've thought about that. And I was like, God, yeah, you know, because I think I'm quite brutal. I mean, I didn't like pop. I didn't like, you know, I did see elements of myself in the experience I didn't particularly like. I had a huge kind of territorial rage to kind of keep Jacob alive, I guess. And to get him back was the phrase. I remember there was one point 
where I thought I've got to get rid of this notion of getting Jacob back. I've mm. got to stop thinking we're going to get back somewhere. We're not going to get back somewhere. We're just going to have to keep walking forward. And at some point, maybe Jake will join us, but it'll, he'll join us at that point. And it's not, we can't go back anymore. We can only go forward. And I've been thinking more and more about that very recently, actually, about what is it that one is trying to reconstruct. And actually, I think that's part of the grief process is letting go and accepting that what you had, what you were, what you were as a family may need to be let go of and buried, I guess. And the kind of fearlessness that I sometimes felt, or maybe omnipotence, I tried to grab hold of an arrest. I'm trying to arrest about that as a concept, which is let go of what you thought you were and start to be fearless about what you could be and what this family could be and how this next part of this story could work. Try and be fearless and unafraid of that because that feels terribly unknown. And I feel much more like I'm working towards trying to help a family heal rather than one person heal now, if that makes sense. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Yeah, totally. I mean, in amongst all this, you had breast cancer. Yeah. <laughs> Just because you didn't have enough shit going on in your life. I thought, why not? You know? Yeah. Let's get that why over not? with. No, you hit 50, why not? Yeah, I mean, the breast cancer was really funny. When I wrote the first few chapters of the book, I wrote a chapter around that period of time. My sister read it and she said, it's great, Abby, but you haven't really mentioned your cancer. <laughs> uh, you know, it was weird. It was so secondary, my cancer, and that is in no way to minimise it because what I've come to see is actually... I think we were all working so hard and I was working so hard to keep Jake alive that 
I didn't take quite so how seriously my own life was in jeopardy. And still, you know, that as a kind of diagnosis is something that I, again, it's a sort of weird sweetness, the wrong word, but it definitely gives an edge to life. You know, I'd spend my whole life chasing deadlines and I'd completely forgotten about the ultimate deadline, which is death. And so in a way it was like, okay, right. Okay, I'm not going to make that deadline yet. I'm going to skip that one. I don't want to go to that. So I guess it's it, it in a way it's kept me Again, it's also made me very hungry for this life and hungry to try and make this as the best I can be. But yeah, I got cancer. I think I got diagnosed in April 2019. So Jake was just going into the rehab section of hospitals. So, I mean, that was comical. I hope that there is a sort of sense of laughter in the book because there is, you know, it was very funny, some of it. So I was just starting my chemo and, you know, Jake was quite perturbed about what was happening to me because, you know, I could see he was very conflicted. He had huge feeling and he couldn't work out why he had feeling for this person. He was he was genuinely concerned by it. And so I arrived, I'd obviously lost all my hair and I was pretty weak. And I remember he'd gone off to do his sort of one of his daily therapies and I just lay down on his bed. And one of a very grumpy nurse went, what is, get out of the bed. Don't bring your sickness here to me. You know, get your sickness out of the house. And I was like, oh yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, and, and then afterwards I thought, well, you know, actually, yeah, you know, it's kind of best place to be as a hospital. So yeah, I don't think I took it seriously. And I, but what I do have now is such a huge, like bloody reverence for anyone who can get through it because it's grueling. You know, all of us, one or two people are going to have some form of cancer in their life. And so we've all been touched by somebody who's experienced cancer. And again, it wasn't like it was in the movies. You know, I'd really braced myself for it. I, you know, the first weekend of chemo it was like, yeah, I'm going to throw up all weekend. Well, what no one tells you is the anti-sickness medication is pretty damn good now. So it keeps you level. But I, I got into bed I kind of whacked on the first series of Game of Thrones I was absolutely going to do this and I worked my way through the first eight episodes of Game of Thrones and that's how I got through my first chemo session and actually I had you know pretty awful 24 hours and I can't listen to Game of Thrones theme tune no. <laughs> it's just too traumatic it's probably not the most restful show to watch but um chemo wasn't it like it had been in the movies you know I think for me it's very different depending on what kind of cancer you have or but for me chemo and the the ongoing treatment was like a slow hollowing out and the thing that actually really shocked me was I developed this huge phobia around machinery I still have it things that peep and buzz and clang I find them incredibly difficult you know anything I have to keep quite far away from that I think I'm kind of quite audio sensitive yeah and I think the MRI machine was a massive trigger for me you know that I just didn't realize that I was you know I'd have to have my fingers literally unpeeled from my sister to get in the machine Um, and that for me was the hardest actually was all the machinery and the clanging and that even then I found this other sort of deep meditative state when I went in there I think it was that and half a Valium that they gave me my god the drugs really do work that definitely worked for me but I found myself tripping and the weirdest thing happened when I first went into my MRI machine the person whose voice came to me was Jacob And it was really, really powerful. He was there and he just went, it's cool, babe. You're going to be fine. It's cool. You can do this. You can do this. And I just had him talking to me. And then I started to just physically put two or three people who are important in my life around me and they spoke to me through it and that's really how I got through my treatment Uh, Justine Picardy whose memoir I adapted very early on in my career I talk a little about it in the book Mm. you know she always said you know what no one tells you is that when someone dies your relationship with them doesn't die you know that relationship Mm. is over and I felt like that I suppose that's the other thing was why I wrote the book was the one thing Jacob and I have always been able to do is talk to each other you know when I've got an idea for a movie or when I've had a great evening 
out or when I've met someone extraordinary, he's the person I want to tell about. He's the one I want to go back to. And I missed our conversation so much. I missed talking to him so much. And so the book became a way to try and talk to him. And what I didn't realize is he would talk back to me in my head. You know, I, 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 you know, I'd lived with this man so long, I can almost predict how Jake would respond. And I guess that was the other thing. So when he woke up, I was like, great, he's back. And actually the shock of seeing somebody look at you and not know you, it is like a sort of a really bad drama exercise that you kind of go, okay, it's funny. Now stop. You know, when you were a kid, every word your mother would say, or you'd just be so bloody, it became that kind of terrible game where I just suddenly realized he couldn't stop from it. And so, you know, when I say about writing the book, like I feel like I was drunk at times, I think I was a bit insane. Mm. And I really think that my journey back and my, the way I retained my sanity was to try and just write things down to say, look, I'm not going mad. This incredulous thing happened today. If I write it down, somehow it's logged down. No one can say it didn't happen. So in a way, I was also telling the story to myself as well. You talk in the book about the kind of am I Abby today game and who is Abby Morgan, you know, and it's just, it would drive you completely insane. It's the ultimate kind of gaslighting. You know, it's weird, actually. You're the first person who said that to me, but it is. It's gaslighting. Yeah, I guess it's a kind of weird gaslighting. I I also think, you know, when your identity and your very existence comes under threat, you know, I remember calling my sister and saying, yeah, no, it's fine. You know, I had this pain, resounding pain in my my left breast. I literally felt like I'd been kicked with a horse and I came up with every reason. I mean, I talk about it in the book. You know, it must be my seatbelt rubbing against me because I'm driving every day. It must be Diet Coke. I've got to give up Diet Coke. It's so bad for me. I'm going to get rid of that much chocolate yeah I'm not sleeping oh it's the way I slept it's the you know I remember speaking to my sister saying going no I'm fine I'll be in and out won't be anything and as soon as I went in and as soon as the doctor looked at me you know I went down and had a immediate procedure but as soon as I came back he said I'm going to tell you now I'm 99% sure you've got breast cancer and that was without anything on paper so I I mean it's a weird high you know, you feel like this kind of incredible high, because I think when anything tragic happens to you, it also becomes a weird passport to a world where people feel sorry for you and are kind to you and mm-hmm. say, I'll look after you. Let me help you. It's kind of disorientating and seductive. And actually, once that's leveled out and, you know, if you can, you accept the moments of help, you've actually realized it's incredible. You're on your own. The only person really that can get you through it is yourself. And so it was a very, very surreal, that feeling of, okay, wow. And that kind of combined with Jacob not knowing me, which almost happened pretty much within weeks of each other. I think this huge, deep kind of dive into myself meant I had to kind of go, okay, come on. The alternative to this is not going to happen. You can't let this happen to you. And yet at the same time, I was also had another voice very clearly saying, okay, if that does happen, how do we map your life out now? How do I make sure everyone's going to be okay? Because Jake's not well. Who's going to look after him if he comes out of hospital and I'm not here anymore? I've got two teenagers. They're nearly cooked, but they're not quite baked. They need to, you know, they need a bit more work. They need a bit more help. Who's going to be the best people to be around for them? And I guess, you know, the truth is if I hadn't had my privilege, my ability to write and therefore make money and my family and my good friends, that's what I've come away from the whole experience is you cannot do it on your own. You're the only person who can drive it, but you're the only person who's ultimately it's going to affect, but actually you can't do it on your own. You have to have this community of people around you who are willing to run with you. It's terrifying having to tell your kids that your partner might die and they need to go and prepare. 
to say goodbye to them. It's terrifying. And everything you try and do for your children is to make them feel safe and reassure them that you're a constant in the world. There's nothing more that will rock your world and theirs than saying, I might not be able to be a constant in your life, you know? So again, I guess that's why I wrote a book because weirdly my conversion of kind of drama into, or life into drama has been something physical that I could keep hold of and kind of hold close to myself and go, okay, this will be left. If nothing else, this will be left. And I guess that was why, again, I sort of had to write it all down. I've heard you say that, you know, as a dramatist, you have to go behind the door and there has to be nothing that you can't write. How was it applying those principles to your own life? In relation to myself, quite easy. But one of the things that I battled with, and then I battled less with, and then I'm thinking again about it, is whose story is it? And how I Mm -hmm. I think, you know, whose story is this? Is this Jacob's story? Is this my story? Is this our story? You know, whose story is it? And I guess it's my story, ultimately, of what happened to me and us. And I think in terms of that, I felt like I could be quite liberated. Anything that would affect me that I could be attacked for or, you know, turned on me, I could deal with. I think where I felt protective over is my family, my children, obviously, and Jacob, you know. And so that's something that I've wrestled with is exposing anything about him to the world. And, you know, it's interesting because he's very proud of what I've done. He's reassured by it, I think, in a weird way, that I've done something which is so typical of me. And I wrote the book in part for him to read. And the one person who I think will never read it will be him. It's not something that he wants to make relevant in his life. He's very much now about moving forward. But then I also know it's a constant changing situation. I know that that may change over time and that might also be part of his recovery. You know, he's still in process at the moment. But yeah, I try and be as brutal and as truthful as I can about myself, but I'm protective of my children and I'm protective of Jake's family and my family, but particularly Jake's family, because, you know, I talk about in the book that it was like, he's my partner, he's my lover, he's the father of my children, but he was also someone's son, someone's brother's Mm -hmm. friend, you know, and that's something where I really learn is that you can never own a person. They just pass through your life. You just get to walk with them in their life. So I suppose I've been protective about making sure that everyone in the family felt okay with what I was saying. And I tried to just be as honest as I could from my perspective. I have to say to anybody listening, it's warm and funny and and it's about love. Mm. Totally, totally. I just want to ask you about, I mean, you're what, 54? 53. 53, sorry to upage you. Yeah, no, I'm 53. I think a lot of people feel that they go through a bit of a shift anyway around about that age, but you've been through the most extreme shift I think that anybody possibly could. How has that changed your approach to work? Well, you know, interestingly, I think about a month before my 40th birthday, my father died. And then about three months before my 50th birthday, Jake collapsed. Each decade, I've had this kind of shift, this kind of big shift. Mm -hmm. The show that's out at the moment, I wrote through the experience. Yeah, the second series of The Split, I had cancer and Jake had collapsed. The third series, Jake was now home and I was dealing with his recovery and mine. And I can see that a lot of that experience and my connection with with those questions around life and death and love and connection and longevity and legacy. They're woven through that show because they were woven through what I was going through. I'm writing a new show at the moment for Netflix that will shoot at the end of the year. And though it's nothing to do with the experience that I've gone through, it's a very, very different world. It's kind of 80s New York thriller. There is a sort of efficiency now to the way I work. And I think my focus is quite different. I've turned off a lot of white noise in my head Mm. because there are just some basic things that I know to be true now, which is I know what's genuinely important to me. 
because I've seen what it what means to lose it. It's an ongoing work in progress family. And I think a lot about the fact that my children now are at that age where they're leaving home and they're falling in love and they're having relationships that are going to be, you know, more important than their ones with their parents in the long term, maybe. And they're going out into the world and experiencing something. So our family was always going to shapeshift. That was going to happen. And I think a lot of the things that I'm experiencing at the moment would have happened anyway. But I think when the central mechanism of your family, every cog has been turned some have been broken we're having to sort of function in a way around those shifts and changes and I'm trying at the moment with my work and try and deal with imperfection try and find imperfection curious in the writing you know listen to the kind of white noise that goes this isn't good enough this isn't good enough which is the constant voice in my head is much more like okay well what can we do with this what's interesting about that why have you written that let's push forward and it's a little bit what's been going on in my life you know is that you know I I talk a lot about the brand of family and Mm. how much I didn't realize I bought into the brand of family. I had this idea of what it would be, you know, and I just, just so recently joined social media and it's such a weird conundrum for me because I'm like, anybody could just kind of scroll through for hours on those kind of weird reels and, you know, look at interiors and how to make perfect salad and who's snogging who and the kind of secret lights of celebrity. But at the same time, it's this kind of weird white noise that is very distracting to me. And also it's dangerous because we know it, it's selling brands of things that we have to try and live up to. And I think with the book is that I've tried to deconstruct my own vanity and my own my own pride because what no one tells you when a trauma hits the family, and I don't mean this in any way that I think it's intellectually makes sense, but emotionally it's deeply humiliating. I didn't realize how humiliated I was going to be by this experience. You know, it's humiliating when your person you love looks at you and says, I don't know who you are anymore. It's humiliating when your body collapses and you can't function in the way you could. And I think that what runs alongside that humiliation now, and I hesitate to use this word, but a kind of kindness and grace that I try and bring to that because I was shocked how much I cared about the wrong things. And now I try and dig deep about kindness towards myself, kindness towards Jake, kindness towards the problems that I'm dealing with around me. And I try and keep very simple my focus, which is just try and tell a good story, try and make it truthful, try and get this family through, (laughs) try and get to a place where we can enjoy our life. You know, those those are sort of running partners. So I guess there's less white noise and there's more kind of purity of just trying to stay alive and trying to mend. Does that make any kind of sense? Yeah, it makes loads of sense. Yeah, yeah absolutely loads of sense. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask you the shallow questions at the end now. I love shallow. I love shallow. <laughs> What's your emotional age? It shifts actually every few years. I think I'm around about 32 right now. So I'm just pre-meeting Jake. You know, my 28 to 32 is a really good years. I love those years. It's just when I'm feeling like, yeah, I think responsibility is about to kick in. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I always remember being on a beach with my father and he was in his 60s. It was only a few years before he died. And I must have been, God, what was I sort of in my late 20s, early 30s? And he said, you know, Abby, I know I look like an old man to you, but in my head, I'm 17. And I remember at the time thinking, a little bit weird. Um, <laughs> I totally get it now. I totally get it now. Weirdly, I'm quite a sensible 30, 32. You probably don't have time to read any books at the moment, but can you give us a book recommendation? Uh, Okay. Lucy Iscott's When the Dust Settles, I just finished reading, which is really beautiful. So she's a kind of trauma psychologist who goes into sort of, you know, anything from 9-11 to the Boxing Day tsunami. And she goes in and sort of helps piece together about what's happening. I found that incredibly moving and resonant. I love Nora Ephron's essays. So uh, I feel bad about my neck. I think should be for every woman who needs to 
look at her own body and laugh um, <laughs> and uh, her own neurosis. So I think those um, I love reading work by other writers. I mean, listening to your podcast, um, Delia Efron, the thing that I couldn't believe, just I felt like I was hearing my own voice sometimes, you know, her thoughts, you know, the idea that every moment of tragedy, you know, will one day become a great story is just brilliant. So that was pretty significant to me. Oh, and the other thing I thought she said, which was really interesting, is that she said every woman needs to know that they won't get any more work in Hollywood after 53. And I thought, fuck, I'm 53. <laughs> um, but what it really reassured me was I must have about 10 screenplays that never got made that I wrote for Hollywood. And I've probably got equally as many jobs that I've got knocked off and another writer's been brought in. So as you're coming out, you can see the new writer mm-hmm. coming in. And I always felt that was a personal failing of myself. And actually hearing her speak, I suddenly went, oh, wow, okay. So this happens to everyone. Um, <laughs> and that, you know, it's taken me till I'm in my 50 to understand that. But yeah. Are you worried about that? Do you feel like you're going to get knocked off? I mean, you're not. I'm pretty sure you're not. But do you worry about that being like a 53-year-old woman in screenwriting in Hollywood? It's exactly what happened with this experience. But whenever I have, whenever I felt too giddy in the world or unsettled in the world or when something's bothering me, I've always thought, stay close to the work, go back to writing. And what, again, I loved about what Delia said in your podcast was she said, you know, that's why I went into writing novels again. That's why I went into writing books. And I, I really love the simplicity of prose writing. So weird. I've sort of thought, oh, well, I, I can always write prose. I can always sit down and write some prose. Whether it'll ever sell, does it really matter in the same way? Yes, it matters to stay alive and pay the bills. But actually, I would probably write even if I wasn't making money from it. So I worry less about that. I just directed the split this time around. And I really enjoyed that. I didn't realise how much fun it would be to finally get to go to the party. You know, as a writer, you always feel like you do the invites, but you don't get to go. And it was just, it was, I really loved the cast. I love the cast, but I love the crew. And that's the thing I thought, God, why didn't I do this a decade ago? And that's why didn't you? Because I think I didn't fully feel I could own the space. And I realized that I never wanted to be a threat to anyone. And I could somehow, as a writer, I could just quietly write. And, you know, and I work with a lot of brilliant directors, men and women, but brilliant directors. And I always thought that's something they do. I also, I love my own company. I love being on my own. I love writing. And I love directing. But at the end of every day, I'd realize what's wrong with me today. And I'd realize it's because I hadn't written. Directing is all consuming and you're always with people. And I would need the downtime of being on my own. But I actually think it's that. You know, I look at the generation that came up beneath me, certainly the, the generation of writers. Writers I really admire, you know, Sarah Feltz, Rebecca Lenkovic, Maury Buffini. You can go down to Lucy Kirkwood, Lucy Preble, Phoebe Waller, Emerald Fennell. These aren't just, you know, the younger generation coming up. They're polymaths. They're not only starring in their own work. You know, I was never going to be an actor, but they're directing, they're writing, they're producing. And that's something that I've started to really feel I can be in own, confident around brilliant peers who support that now. But I think, you know, when I was coming through my late 20s, early 30s, I would go to those BBC writers parties. And there would be me and a load of men in leather jackets, white men in leather jackets, you know. And at that time, I found a way to make my space. But I I didn't think I could own that space. So I guess it's that really. And that's the one thing I would tell myself now is just be a bit bullshit. Dig your elbows in a bit more. Make your space. It's okay. It's okay not to be liked. Because I think I just wanted to be user friendly all the time. And the main thing I did want to feel was envy or threat. I didn't want anybody ever to feel threatened by me. And I think maybe that's why I didn't ever enter some of those arenas. I mean, the irony is that actually the community that have been so incredibly supportive of me, other directors who I've worked with, who've rung me and gone, come on, I keep telling you, great that you're doing it. I've felt incredibly supported by that. So maybe it's something they all knew before me. 
you know, it's really interesting. We all have schadenfreude at some point. We all see someone else and go, oh, so sad that your film didn't get made. And inside we may be internally punching the air because we're a bit jealous. Yeah. We're a little bit, you know, we're a little bit insecure. And um, the thing that I sort of realise is that I'm never, ever jealous or threatened by good work. I'm always inspired by good work. I'm always like brilliant. And it's the great leveller. And what I love is that when people at the top of their game go, yeah, you, there's room for you. Keep going. And I think that's the thing. There's, there is room for everybody. You know, I think there was a period in my 20s where you'd be the only woman in the room and therefore you'd think there wasn't room for you. You'd think mm. you'd occupy that space. And now actually what I realise is, is you don't only occupy that space, you make sure there's a space next to you for someone else to sit as well. And so I'm much more interested in that. I guess that's my big takeaway is I'm really interested in how I proactively support and help that generation coming through and make more space so that someone like me coming out in their 20s goes, do you think I could direct? And someone goes, yep, you can go do it. That ties in a bit to the next question, which is what advice would you give younger women? Oh my gosh. Um, don't dial down your light, <laughs> you know, turn it, turn it up brighter, but use it to, you know, light the way, I guess. That's what I would say is, you know, just keep pushing your thoughts forward, be inspired, read more. Don't read reviews, read books. That's what I would yeah, say. That's um, so true. One day you'll sit next to that great novelist and you'll kick yourself. You haven't read every single one of her books. Don't dial down your light and don't underestimate what you're able to achieve. Just keep pushing forward. I wish I'd thought about something slightly more erudite than that, but no, it's in that ballpark. Put that on a t-shirt. Yeah, no, do you know what? I think that's really good. And I wish someone said that to me. Did anybody say that to you? No, but I think they showed it. Like Nora Ephron was very significant to me because she was the first woman I went, oh my God, she's doing it all. You know, she's funny, she's witty, she's directing, she's openly the first person to have that big conversation about women's growing invisibility the older they get. And she made it in Hollywood. And, you know, it's like Catherine Bigelow, it's like Jane Campion, it's like Ava Duvernay, it's like those directors that are coming through, those writers that have coming through it's really inspiring so I think they show it by that you know find your champions but also find someone you admire that you want to walk in their footsteps I guess it's that as well so would Nora Ephron have been your old bird role model totally you know she'd be my dream dinner party guest mm. her and Hildy from you know my girl Friday I think I'd love yeah. those two you know in a room that would be pretty fun what's your superpower my ability to find things I'm brilliant <laughs> at finding things that get lost making a you know a drama out of chaos I guess that's my superpower I guess that's my superpower <laughs> I can find the story wherever <laughs> you totally can and how many fucks do you give there have been days when I gave way too many and now I don't give any really if I'm honest except will I google my own name will I google my reviews yes I probably will will you <laughs> you haven't got a google alert on your name though have you no, I have not, thank you. Oh, God. God, can you imagine? Can you get that? You can, but um, I don't no, I have don't one. Have a, no, I don't have a Google alert. That would Can't. be so tragic and sad. I mean, that would be like waiting for someone to jump out of a cupboard the whole day, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. it'd be awful. Like every five awful. minutes, I'd hate it. Yeah, that's not, no, definitely not. But I'm now going to go and have to Google how you get a Google alert now. Oh, no. <laughs> You do not need to know. Thank you so much, Abby. It's been really lovely. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for reading the book. No, I loved it. And um, good luck. Thank you. Fingers crossed. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at steady.media forward slash shift. Ever 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.